Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark chapter 9, 9-13, Jesus Transfiguration, part 3. We've been looking at the only authenticated, confirmed alien sighting besides E.T., the only confirmed alien sighting in history. And like we would expect, this caused a lot of shock, terrified the spectators, but not because it was such a scary, hideous sight, but because it was such an awesome sight, an amazing sight that they saw. Now, if you've missed the last couple, part one and part two, I want to encourage you to get the CDs or listen to the podcast, catch up on that. But we saw Jesus' transfiguration, his amazing transfiguration, and we talked about how that transfiguration that same power that he has is now available to us for our transformation for us today. Then we look back at the Old Testament and we saw how the prophetic picture, the type of the transfiguration was shown in the book of Exodus. We saw that. Now we're going to finish up the transfiguration today with another prophetic event. Some of you, I think, already found another prophetic event that's talked about not at the beginning of the Old Testament, but the end of the Bible that ties all three events together. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for bringing us through a lot of snow and a lot of cold and a lot of struggles in our lives. We pray for your Holy Spirit to speak through your word now. We pray for your mercy and grace to touch our hearts and and is, no matter what we're struggling with, no matter what we're going through, that your spirit would give us the grace to take a step forward this morning. We pray for that transfiguration power to transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read the whole story again to set the tone here with Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. So let's just start off with, uh, we're going to be in 9 through 13 today. Let's just start off with 9 and 10 again. I'm going to read these again. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept 
the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So he tells them, tells them don't tell anyone what's going to happen. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until I've risen from the dead. Once again, we, we're looking at the messianic secret. Remember, it's a timetable. Jesus is on this perfect timetable that God has given him to finish his ministry before his crucifixion, before his resurrection. So the messianic secret, until after he had risen from the dead, which they did. In fact, in 2 Peter, in 2 Peter 1... 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, where Peter does talk about what he saw. Verse 16, we did not follow clever... This is Peter talking, right? We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice, voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter's got a whole new perspective, doesn't he now? And now he understands what he saw. And the Holy Spirit is now speaking through Peter as he writes this scripture to us. And so that's what they did. They, after Jesus rose from the dead, they did share that. Then back to Mark chapter 9. We'll start look at verses 11 to 13 to finish up today. Where he says to them, and they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. They're confused. They believe in the resurrection of the dead. But they don't expect Jesus to die. That's why they're trying to understand this whole resurrection and what does it mean to be rising from the dead. They, they don't expect Jesus to die because what do the people believe? They think the Messiah is going to be the conquering hero. They only saw the first coming. The Jewish teachers of that time were focusing on the second coming. They, they only saw it as one coming. They didn't understand how there could be the Messiah could be rejected and, and suffer and yet be this conquering hero. So they kind of just ignored the suffering part. A lot of preachers do that today in, in the church today, don't they? You know, uh, on TV, you don't hear much about that. But they ignored that and they just focused on the conquering hero, how he's going to come and destroy the world and, and set up Israel as a kingdom. And they focused on that. They didn't understand that. So they're trying to figure this whole thing out. So they start to ask about Elijah. And, and they say... They just saw Elijah. Hey, don't the teachers of the law say he must come first? That's what they're saying to Jesus. Don't they say he must come first? Well, what's going on here? And they got that from Malachi 4, 4 to 5. In Malachi 4, 4 to 5, there's a prophecy given in Malachi, which says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And we see that the day of the Lord is talked about in Malachi and how Elijah is going to come first. The day of the Lord is an end times event. It's when the Messiah re returns. Some people think he's coming for the first time. They're going to be in for a surprise. It's the same guy who came the other time. The Messiah comes. It's going to be a time of judgment. We see Moses and Elijah connected to the day of the Lord here in Malachi. It's interesting that both are connected here in Malachi 4 because they're also present at the transfiguration, right? We're going to connect the dots here in just a minute. The Jewish tradition is that Moses and Elijah will return in the last days to prepare for the, the Messiah. That's the Jewish tradition that, that is taught through their tradition. In fact, in the Passover meal, 
Some of you were here when we did Christ and the Passover a couple years ago. In the Passover meal, remember the cup that's kept out? They actually keep out a cup for Elijah during the Passover. And they're watching every year. They watch to see if that cup tips. Because if the cup tips during the Passover meal, that means Elijah has come and the Messiah is close. And every year they're disappointed. But they don't have to be, do they? So we, we see this whole tradition that's taught here and we see that in the scripture. So what the disciples are really asking, is this it? We just saw Elijah. Is this it? But shouldn't he appear to the whole nation? Why did you appear to us and why are you keeping this secret? What's going on here? And Jesus answers them back in verses 11 and 13. He answers them. He said, the teachers of the law are right. Elijah does come. They got that right. But they miss something, and he connects the dots for them. They miss that the prophecies also say that the Messiah will suffer and be rejected. And they also missed out on Elijah because he did come and restore all things. Matthew 17, if we look at Matthew 17, verses 11 and 13, listen to what he says. Jesus, it's a parallel passage that gives more detail. Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. In fact, if you back up in Matthew, Matthew to Matthew chapter 3, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is all he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John the Baptist was the spiritual Elijah for the first coming. He was preparing for the Messiah's first coming. He was preparing Israel for the coming of the Messiah, but he was rejected and killed just as the Messiah was going to be rejected and killed. So Malachi 4 has a double fulfillment. John the Baptist for the first coming, remember the Passover meal? Elijah has come. The Messiah has come too. They missed them both. They're not going to miss the second one because there will be a literal fulfillment. Elijah will come at the second coming. Coming. He's going to come and prepare the way for the second coming when Jesus Christ returns as the conquering, not the suffering Messiah, but as the conquering Messiah. He's going to fill, fulfill all the scriptures of the Messiah, the Messianic scriptures. To find this coming, we have to look in the book of Revelation. Did anyone find the transfiguration in Moses and Elijah in the book of Revelation? Now, we can't be 100% dogmatic, but a pretty good chance we can find them in Revelation 11. Revelation 11. This is where it gets fun now. In Revelation 11, I'm going to read it for you. Once again, we can't be 100% dogmatic, but very likely this is, this is the second coming of Elijah, which leads to the second coming of Christ. John the Baptist's first coming, spiritual Elijah, this time the literal fulfillment Chapter 11, verse 1, John talking. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 
I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Woo! He says to John, go and measure the temple. Now, this is 90 A.D. Well, there is no temple when he tells him this. But the temple he's talking about here is a prophetic in the future temple. And this is in the tribulation. The Bible teaches very clearly that the Antichrist will make a seven-year peace deal with Israel. Land for peace, however it works out, right? We all see it in the news every day. It's going to happen. Somebody's going to rise up, be a world leader, lots of charisma, solve all the world. going to be seen as a messianic figure by the world, not by the Christians, but by the world. And he's going to make a deal, and he's going to give, work out a peace deal that is going to give Israel the right to build, rebuild their temple on the temple site. How is that going to work? I don't know. Is an earthquake going to knock it down? I don't know. Is it a war? Is it, is it going to be built next to the mosque? I don't know. But somehow the temple is going to be there. And the Israel, is going to, the Israel is going to think this is the greatest guy on earth. He gave us our temple. But he's going to break his deal. After three and a half years, he's going to break the deal, which will spark the second half of the tribulation. That's why it says the Gentiles will trample, will trample. For the second half of the tribulation will be a time of intense persecution. The Jews in, in Jerusalem and, and the Jews around the world, it's going to be a second holocaust that's going to be far worse than the first one. And this will be an open season on Christians too. We're not sure when we're going to be taken up, when the rapture is going to happen. There's three different possibilities. There's a, there, the rapture is when, when Jesus takes the believers off the earth before he really gives us the, the final hammering. Some believe that he's going to take us up before, at the beginning of the, of the tribulation. That's called the pre-tribulation rapture. Some think it's going to be in the middle. It's called the pre-wrath rapture, where we'll be taken up in the middle of the tribulation before it really hits the fan. Or some believe we're going to go through the whole tribulation and God's going to protect us just like he protected the Israelites in Egypt during all the plagues. He's going to protect the Christians and the believers during this time. We cannot be dogmatic on when it is because it's not taught clearly. All we do know is that there is going to be a rapture and we've got to be ready. I tell everybody, pray for pre-tribulation rapture. Prepare for post-tribulation rapture. That's the only mature way to look at this because it's not clearly taught. 
It's a mystery that God has left here. I hope for a pre-trib rapture. I pray for that a lot, but I prepare myself for a post or a mid-trib. We have to be prepared. We don't know. We have to be prepared for how God is going to move in this way. Now, we don't know when the rapture is, but even if it is an early one, even if it's pre-tribulation rapture, he takes the believers up, there will still be people becoming Christians during that tribulation time. So whether it's us here or people who are just becoming Christians, there's going to be intense persecution of Christians. And, and people are becoming Christians. And anybody who has not taken the mark, there's going to be a mark of the beast, the 666. We're not sure exactly what that's going to look like, but we know there's going to be a mark of the Antichrist that people have to take as a mark of loyalty and so they can buy and sell and, and have food and, and not be hunted down by the Antichrist. The, anybody who has not taken that mark can still put their faith in Christ during this tribulation period. And there's going to be intense persecution during this time. And even if it is a pre-tribulation rapture that, that's going to happen, which we're praying for, hoping for, even if it is that, there's still going to be a lot of persecution leading up to the tribulation time. The Bible teaches that it's going to increase in intensity. It's going to be intense persecution leading up to this time. book of Daniel 11 talks about people being burned. Revelation 20 talks about people being beheaded. And I remember when I was a kid reading this saying, why would people burn somebody? Why would they behead somebody? They don't do that anymore. Here we are. Read the news. Here we are. But God will still have a testimony. He'll still have a witness during this dark time. Not only the believers who are here, but there's going to be two powerful witnesses. Who are they? I believe most likely they're the same two guys we just saw in the transfiguration. I believe it's Moses and Elijah. Look, look at them. Elijah. Elijah never died. Right? He was taken up in a fiery chariot, which is a picture of the rapture. Right, He was taken up. He never died. But what did he do when he was on earth? He caused droughts. He, this would fulfill Mal Malachi 4, which we know Elijah is going to come in the flesh to fulfill Malachi 4. We also, Moses. What did Moses do while he was here? Turn water to blood. Look at the connections here. Turn water to blood and all the plagues, just like in the book of Exodus. Also, in, also we know that Moses... When he died, what does it say in Deuteronomy? Then in Deuteronomy, what happened? God hid his body and buried his body. Nobody knew what happened to his body. Except when we see in Jude chapter... Well, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 9. In Jude verse 9 it says... It says a very interesting verse here that gives us a clue on what happened. It says here, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Fighting with the devil over Moses' body. Because God had hid it and buried it and didn't allow it to see. Most likely, this shows that God kept his body for a special purpose. Kept it from decay possibly for this end times resurrection. And so now we have two individuals here, two individuals which represent the resurrection, Moses, and the rapture, Elijah. And they're also the two reps, as we also talked about, the two representatives of the law and the prophets, which were present at the transfiguration, who confirmed Jesus Christ as the Messiah up on the mountain of transfiguration, confirmed him as the Messiah, and I believe that the two that are going to come again and confirm the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they will stand as two witnesses as against the Antichrist. The fire is going to come from their mouth, probably just like uh, when 
calling down fire from heaven like Elijah did when he did up on the prophets of Baal with the altar there. What happened there on Mount Carmel, just like Elijah did? They're going to use plagues to punish and torment the Antichrist and his followers, just like Moses used against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Pharaoh oppressed the Israelites, but he paid a price. God finally delivered his people after he paid that price. And the Antichrist will persecute the Jews and the Christians. But he's going to get hammered the whole time with all kinds of plagues until finally God delivers us. Then going back to Revelation 11, let's look at verses 7 to 10 again because it brings out something interesting here that applies to us. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, the beast being the Antichrist, and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. When they finish their testimony, when it's all finished, the beast, the Antichrist, is allowed to kill them. And they won't bury their bodies because that's the ultimate insult not to bury their bodies. It happens in Jerusalem where, the, where Jesus was crucified. Jesus crucified Jerusalem. It's called Sodom because of the moral wickedness that is there at this time. And it's called Egypt because of the oppression. And that only makes sense. Think about it. The Antichrist has now taken over. Imagine what it will look like. Well, imagine what Jerusalem will look like with Satan as the mayor of Jerusalem, right? And imagine what the world's going to look like with the Antichrist as the president of the world. That's what's going to be happening. The Antichrist is going to be totally possessed by the devil. He's going to be the mayor of Jerusalem and the president of the world. Imagine the wickedness and the oppression that's going on. That's why he talks about Sodom and Egypt there. And for three and a half days, it says the whole world will watch. Now, we know this couldn't have happened yet. It had to happen in this day, Right? Because now we have TV and now we have uh, internet and, and everybody in the world can now see an event. That couldn't have happened a thousand years ago, right? We are at the time when this could literally be fulfilled. It's going to spark a worldwide holiday. The people are going to give gifts. It's a new Christmas. They're not going to be celebrating the old Christmas. They've totally rejected Jesus Christ. It's a new Christmas. It's going to be their new holiday. It shows a total depravity of what the world is going to be like. We're seeing glimpses, of it, glimpses now, aren't we? It's the only time that rejoicing on earth is mentioned in the book of Revelation. There's rejoicing in heaven, but never on earth. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that rejoicing and celebrating is mentioned. And it's because they've killed these two people. They, they no longer have to listen to these two fanatics preach anymore. These fanatics that, that are tormenting them. Why? Because people are going to hate God's word. They hate God's word. It's tormenting to them. Now they're not going to have to listen to these guys and deal with their consequences and the plagues anymore. But it's not over. In fact, their torment is just beginning. Just beginning. Verses 11 to 13, we, let's look at their resurrection of the two witnesses. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. 
At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Look at the parallels to Jesus here. They had their ministry for three and a half years, just like Jesus. They died in Jerusalem, just like Jesus. They resurrected after three days, just like Jesus. And now we see they're ascending in a cloud, just like Jesus. Pretty interesting, isn't it? The connections with the, with the life of Christ there. It terrifies everyone watching on TV. Everybody on their smartphones watching this, this event, giving presents to each other, right? The party is over, though. The worldwide Mardi Gras comes to a screeching halt. There's a massive earthquake. A tenth of the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. 7,000 people die. But the survivors give glory to God. This is a start of the Jewish revival. This is the start of a remnant that's being made ready for the coming of the Messiah who's coming for the second time. Well, let's connect some dots for us today. Jesus is coming a second time. And he's coming to rapture the living believers, those who are still alive when he comes, and he's going to resurrect those who are asleep. The Bible calls them sleeping because they're not... The world calls it death, but the Bible calls it asleep. Because if you're a Christian, you're going to wake up again. And Moses and Elijah are a picture of our rapture and resurrection. It's a picture. Elijah with the rapture, Moses with the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 it says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, and imperishable, and we will all be changed. That's the picture of the resurrection and the rapture at the same time. Before Jesus comes again, though, there's going to be increasing and intense persecution. You read, we've... From the book of Revelation, we've studied it before. We see that it's going to lead up to, no matter when the rapture is, there's going to be increasing and intense persecution. But we don't have to fear, and this is important to remember, because God is in control. These two witnesses couldn't be killed until when? Until God gave the okay. Until they had finished their testimony. They couldn't be killed. Satan couldn't kill him. The Antichrist couldn't kill him. The armies of the world couldn't kill him until they'd finished their testimony. We are immortal. If you, are, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and given your life to him, the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. We are immortal until we finish our calling. Do you understand that? The Bible teaches this clearly. Until our ministry is finished, we can't be touched. If you're a parent with children, you're, you can't be touched until your job with your child is done. If you're a policeman, you can't be killed in the line of duty until your job is done. If you're a soldier serving anywhere in the world, it doesn't matter where you are, you can't be touched until your job is done. If you're ministering in a very dangerous area, we, we support some missionaries in some pretty dangerous areas, you can't be, nothing can happen to them without God's okay. And what looks like human tragedy 
is all part of God's plan. To human eyes, it's a tragedy. To God, it's part of his plan. What is it? I don't know. It's impossible to figure it out. It looks... I can't even begin to grasp it. But I don't try to. Because I'm not God. We are untouchable until God gives the okay. It's vital to remember that. We're, until God gives the okay, we're untouchable. In fact, there's a story in Voice of the Martyrs that I saved that just, I just thought really brought this out powerfully. It was in Bangladesh a couple years ago in Bangladesh. It, this guy says here, uh, Bangladesh, we had the house surrounded. If Abu wanted to be a Christian, he'd have to do it somewhere else. We surrounded his house ready to force him out and burn it. As we got closer... We could hear him talking. There's a, there's a mob coming to burn this guy's house in Bangladesh, a Christian. As we got closer, we could hear him talking, but we didn't know with whom he was speaking. Had others gathered to help him, we wondered? Then we could hear that he was praying. He was praying for the entire village and asking Jesus to forgive us for what we were about to do. This made us even angrier because we thought someone had told Abu about our plan. We rushed toward his house, 25 of us, to apprehend him, but then there was an invisible force that would not let any of us enter his home. It was so frightening that we ran away. I could not sleep that night. I kept thinking about Abu's prayer. Did we really not know what we were about to do by attacking him? I couldn't get the experience out of my mind. Finally, at 3 a.m., I went back to Abu's house. Who is Jesus, I asked him. After three hours of talking with Abu, I asked Jesus to forgive me and surrendered my life to him. Jesus saved me. I rushed to my house and shared what had happened to me with my wife and also she also became a Christian all, along with my children powerful story what if Abu had been killed did that mean God wasn't in control no God's in control so if we face loss or we're in a crisis or we're going through a trial remember something it didn't catch God off guard God wasn't up there saying, oh, darn, I must have been napping. How did that happen to that person? How did that happen to my child? It doesn't catch God off guard. Our question can't be why. Why did God let this happen to me? Why did God allow this? It can't be why. The question has to be what. What is God trying to do in my life? What is he trying to accomplish in my life? So often we get stuck in the why and we get stuck there forever, and it destroys our faith, and it messes us up, and it hurts our witness. We get stuck in the why because we refuse to surrender to the what? To his will and his purpose. And once again, I don't know. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. But the key is to focus not on the why, but on the what. What did God use to impact the unbelievers in the book of Revelation. 
These two witnesses. And what did he use in their life? Witnessing plus suffering and death equals resurrection power. They were witnesses. They suffered and died. And they rose again. That was, that's the, the equation that we see jumping out at us. It's the same thing Paul talks about in, in, in Philippians 3, 10 and 11. When he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I get that. What do we usually pray for? We want to experience the power of his resurrection. But we're missing the equation, aren't we? So often in this American church. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Witness plus suffering and death equals resurrection power. As we witness and as people see how we handle life's sufferings, how we, they see how we handle life's tribulations, they will then see God's resurrection power in our lives. And they'll be led to, to come to Christ. That will be a powerful witness to them. Witness plus suffering Witnessing plus suffering and death equals resurrection power. I shared this story back when it happened, but I, I just remembered it when I was doing this. It was, it was called The Light in the Darkness. It was right after 9-11. It was in focus on the family, a powerful story. It says here, El Braca was a beam of hope for people caught in a desperate situation. Jeannie Braca switched on the television to check September 11th, check the, the weather report, only to hear that a plane had just hit the World Trade Center. Jeannie's husband, Al, worked on a, as a corporate bond trader for Cantor Fitzgerald. His office was on the 105th floor of Tower One. Jeannie hadn't spoken to Al since he had left work that morning. A year earlier, she had suffered a severe heart attack that had left her with only 16% of her heart functioning. For that reason, no one told her about the collapse of the towers, and they kept everything from her because they were afraid she would, her heart would quit working. There for a reason. Al had survived the World Trade Center bombing in 1993, even helped a woman with asthma escape from the building. Jeannie didn't think it would be any different this time. I knew he would stop and help and minister to people, but I never thought for a minute he wouldn't come out of there. Later in the evening, her sons broke the news about the towers, told her that night. A week later, Al's body was found in the rubble. Then the reports trickled in from friends and acquaintances. Some people on the 105th floor had made a last call or sent a final email to a loved one saying that a man was leading People in prayer, a few people referred to Al by name. When he realized that they were all trapped in the building and would not be able to escape. It doesn't matter how many times I read this thing. Al shared the gospel with a group of 50 co-workers and led them at prayer. This news came as no surprise to Jeannie. For years, she and Al had been praying for the salvation of these 
men and women. According to Jeannie, Al hated his job. Anybody out there hate their job? Hated his job. He couldn't stand the environment. It was a world so completely out of touch with his Christian values. But he wouldn't quit. He was convinced that God wanted him to stay there, to be a light in the darkness. To that, to that end, Al shared his faith with his workers, many of whom sarcastically nicknamed him the Rev. They mocked him, Jeannie recalls. But when horrible things happened in their lives, they always asked Al for prayer. On September 11th, in the midst of the chaos, Al's family was uppermost on his mind. Unable to get through on his phone, Al asked the MCI operator to contact his family. Tell them I love them, he said. It took the operator more than a month to reach the Bracas, but the message brought them much-needed comfort. The last thing my dad did involved the two things most important to him, God and his family. Christopher says he loved to lead people to Christ. That takes away a lot of the hurt and the pain. Witness plus suffering and death equals resurrection power. Do you have that peace? Do you have the peace that Al had? There's only one way to get it. What if you were on the 100th floor of the World Trade Center, knowing that you only had a short time to live, there's no way out? Would you have that peace? We can all have that peace by making peace with God. John 3.16 says it best, and I'm pretty sure this is probably what Al was sharing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We can have peace with God by putting our faith in Jesus, by turning to him to forgive our sins, all the sin in our life, to ask him to forgive us. To turn away from our sin, to put our faith in Jesus, what he did on the cross. He died in our place. He took our sin upon himself. He took our place. And if we'll put our faith in him and give our life to him, we make peace with God, and the Holy Spirit comes in, and we become a child of God at that moment. And we are given the ability to have peace no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, even death. Do you have that peace? As Christians, maybe you've already put your faith in Christ, you have that peace, but do we have the power? We may not be on the 100th floor, but we're facing, we are not be on the 100th floor of the World Trade Center, but we all face trials, we all face crises, we all face struggles, challenges every day. How is our witness? Are we allowing God to use our tribulations? Who's watching us? Who's watching us? 
Witness plus tribulation equals resurrection power. Power. If we learn to see it that way, God can do amazing things in and through us. I'm going to finish with one story from the news because I think it just puts an exclamation point on this passage. It says, the title is, Brother of Slain Coptic Christian Thanks ISIS for Including Their Words of Faith in Murder Video. Speaking in a live prayer and worship program on Christian Channel SAT7 Arabic yesterday, I'm going to mess up these names, but Bashir Kamel said that he was proud of his brothers, Bishoy and Samuel, because they were a badge of honor to Christianity. Harrowing scenes of the murders have been seen around the world. The last words of some of those killed were, Lord Jesus Christ. Bashir Campbell thanked ISIS, thanked ISIS, for not editing, editing out the men's declaration of belief in Christ, because he said this had strengthened his faith. He added that the families of the expatriate workers who were killed are congratulating one another and are not in despair. We are proud to have this number of people from our village who have become martyrs, he told the program. He said since the Roman era, Christians have been martyred and have learned to handle everything that comes our way. This only makes us stronger in our faith because the Bible told us to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. Asked by the host what he would say if he were asked to forgive ISIS, he related what his mother said she would do if she saw one of the men who killed her sons. My mother, an uneducated woman in her 60s, said she would ask them into her house and ask God to open their eyes because he was the reason her son entered the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read that again. My mother said I would ask them to enter the house and ask God to open their eyes because they were the reason her son entered the kingdom of heaven. Invited to pray for his brothers, killers, Bashir prayed, Dear God, please open their eyes to be saved and to quit their ignorance and the wrong teachings they were taught. It's unbelievable. Witness plus tribulation and suffering equals resurrection power. Let's pray. Do you have this power today? Do we have this power? Have we surrendered our lives? Maybe the first step is you have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, putting your faith in him. Have you taken that step of faith, prayed that prayer of faith? If you haven't, you can have this kind of peace, unbelievable peace right now by giving your life to Jesus Christ. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Right where you're sitting, you can pray the prayer of faith and give your life to Jesus Christ. God, I repent of my sin. I ask you to forgive me. Everything I've ever done wrong, ever will do wrong, I ask you to forgive me. Because I'm putting my faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in my place, who rose from the dead to show his power. I put my faith in Jesus. I give my life to him. If you've prayed that prayer this morning, you now have the resurrection power, the transfiguration power of Jesus Christ inside of you. You're in for the shock of your life. You will never be the same. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. And he's going to make you like Jesus Christ and grow you in ways and speak to your heart and convict you and encourage you and bless you in ways that you never thought possible. If you've taken that step of faith, I want to encourage you to let somebody know. Maybe you came with a friend or family member. Let me know on the way out. Fill out a card, text, call, something, email. Let somebody know so we could... Number one, be excited for you, but also help you grow in your new faith. For those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus Christ, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? If we were facing our last day on earth, if we were sitting up at the top of that World Trade Center, how many lives would we change? How many people would look to us? Because really we all are there, aren't we? And we could be people's last hope here on this earth. What do we need to surrender? Where do we need to refocus our life? What area of our life needs God's holiness? our repentance and turning to God for mercy and grace. Father, there's so much in this life that doesn't make sense. The only way we can keep going is by putting our faith in you and living by that faith. Believing that you're in control realizing you have a purpose 
that it's a lot bigger than our puny purposes that we pursue, but you have a real eternal purpose for our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts to see that this week, to see the lives that you want us to touch, the people you want us to love with the love of Christ, the purposes that you want us to pursue that are far different from our own selfish inward focus. Only your Holy Spirit can do this. Only your Holy Spirit can prepare us for our calling, whatever it is. And even more so as we approach the time of the second coming of your son, Jesus Christ. And what that will be an awesome time, but also will be an intense time. Prepare us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.